It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. News Podcast presents Brett Baer's All-Star Panel. America's got to be in the lead if you want to deal with these threats. We're going to lead. The morning is over. The shiva is done. And if you're a conservative, you should be optimistic. You know, my main priority right now is making sure that it delivers for the American people. Yeah, the president sounded like he's concerned about it, but no specifics, no change in policy. We have to make our country great again, and I will do that. I think the president gets criticized by people all the time for the stuff he says, by people who ignore what he does. Now, Fox's chief political anchor, Brett Baer. President Biden has met with a bipartisan group of lawmakers today to discuss his $2.2 trillion infrastructure proposal. The president has said he's open to compromise on the proposal, but has warned he will not tolerate inaction. So what does that all mean? These bipartisan talks come during a tense week for the nation as the jury begins their deliberation and the trial of Derek Chauvin, the Minneapolis police officer accused in the death of George Floyd and cities across the nation ramp up security ahead of the verdict either way. For this and more, we'll bring in our all-star panel this week. Founding editor at the Washington Free Beacon and AEI resident fellow, Matthew Cottonetti. Former campaign manager for Senator Scott Brown and Republican strategist Colin Reed. And Democratic strategist and syndicated talk radio host, Leslie Marshall. Hi, guys. At Leslie... Let me start with you. It seems to me that as they're counting heads up there on Capitol Hill for potential votes, that there may be a softening as far as um, pushing this infrastructure spending bill, whatever you want to call it, through with just Democratic votes. It seems like they're warming to the idea of scaling it back a little bit or really doing some negotiation. Absolutely, uh, uh, Brett. You're, you're right on there. I mean, the president, this is the second time the president's had meetings. He had uh, eight members from Congress. Now he has meetings, once again, bipartisans, five Dems, uh, four Republicans, one independent. And the president has not only signaled, but outright said that he prepares to compromise. One issue in the bill uh, that even some Democrats, you know, the more moderate Democrats and, and certainly some Republicans are not happy with is the uh, family care provisions that are part of that. They don't feel that has a place with infrastructure. And there seems to be some willingness among Democrats to maybe take that out. Speaking of, Democrats also are talking about maybe breaking this down into two infrastructure packages, which with the uh, lower price tag and some compromise might be easier to pass. But as you know, Brett, infrastructure is something that has bipartisan support, not just among politicians, but voters. And it's really a win when Democrats or Republicans take home an infrastructure piece of legislation that passes because job creation is inevitable uh, regardless of the price tag. Yeah, Colin, obviously the definition of infrastructure, we've been around that block, the semantics of that, the definition of bipartisan in this White House. They're saying it's bipartisan to have Republicans in a poll say they like that as opposed to actual votes by Republicans on Capitol Hill. But it does seem a little bit more towards negotiating this time. Well, Brett, for all the talk about whether the Republicans are going to support this bill, 
the greater dissension seems to me in the Democratic ranks. Uh, there's certain Democratic members from the Northeast who are upset about the state and local tax uh, issue. There's Democrats in Iowa who are upset about the biofuel issue. And the Democrats have very, very thin majorities, as we all know. So it's not as though they can afford to lose many of their own, especially with the margins they face. But as for the Republicans, they've got a pretty unified message. And it comes down to two things that people can understand. One, this bill is too expensive. And two, it's not targeted enough and full of things that aren't actually infrastructure. So as those two messages begin to permeate and resonate with the American electorate, then you've got go back to the Democrats for a second. They've got to worry about their left wing base uh, who are concerned that the bill is getting too watered down and not progressive enough. So I, I wouldn't worry so much about the Republicans on this one. I I'd see if the Democrats can really circle their wagon. Um, Matthew, I understand we're going to see a push for climate change by the president, uh, legislation and, and proposals inside this and perhaps the second spending bill that Leslie talked about. Is that an easy sell for the, the voting public? No, I, I think it's an easy sell for Democrats. But look, I, I don't think it's in the Democrats' advantage to split this infrastructure bill into two pieces. Why give the Republicans uh, the opportunity to say they voted for uh, infrastructure, uh, whereas ideally you would just get the popular parts, the actual roads and bridges, and even the broadband, as well as all of the uh, elder care and other provisions that, that are in the bill. That, that fundamentally, the, the disagreement uh, between the two parties isn't so much over whether they like infrastructure or not. It's how to pay for it. And I think the real obstacle to getting Republican support for either a single bill or two bills is the corporate tax rate. But at the end of the day, Republicans are not eager to raise the corporate tax rate. And I don't think they can raise enough revenue in the so-called pay for such as increasing the gas tax, which Biden is leery of, by the way to pay for that 800 billion in you know solid infrastructure that they say they support. Yeah. Meantime, uh, Leslie, obviously this is a, a kind of a, a dangerous time. I talked about it at the open, a, a tense time. You have the case of uh, George Floyd's death and, and the case of Derek Chauvin, the former Minneapolis police officer coming to a conclusion. You obviously still have protests in uh, Brooklyn center where at uh, the fatal police shooting of Dante Wright in that, vacuum uh, steps Congresswoman Maxine Waters, uh, where she went to Brooklyn Center and said that she wanted to fight with all the people who stand for justice, but then went on to say that they've got to stay on the street. They've got to be more active and, quote, we've got to get more confrontational. Um, is there a problem with that? Definitely not a good idea to uh, stoke any flames. Look, the protests really haven't stopped if you look at different pockets in the United States since George Floyd's death. And I live in Los Angeles, Brett, and uh, uh, most of us don't forget 1992 and the name Rodney King, which is trending today, and the acquittal of four officers, which uh, led to riots uh, here in the city uh, that I live. So uh, a lot of people fearful with uh, you know stepped up security measures in, in many cities uh, when we look at history. Look, when I lived in Chicago years back, I remember when the Chicago Bulls one, people would shoot and and burn things. And I'm like, wait a minute, isn't this a good thing? We won, you know, when I was living in Chicago. Uh, so it, it, it's, you know, this is a very emotionally charged situation. There are people that obviously, I, I think on both sides of this issue, uh, that are ready uh, to pounce. It's very frightening. We have up to 2,000 National Guard uh, ready to uh, respond. And I don't think, quite frankly, any politician, I don't care what side of the aisle they are on, should you know take a poker to those hot uh, charcoals that are, are very 
very ready to be ignited depending on the outcome of this trial. Mm -hmm. The Republican minority leader, uh, Kevin McCarthy, Colin, said um, that he was going to bring this up. He accused Walter, uh, uh, accused uh, Maxine Waters of inciting violence and dangerous rhetoric. Obviously, McCarthy also said President Donald Trump was responsible for January 6th, but did not support his impeachment based on that. What about this and, and the state we are as we wait for this trial to come to conclusion? Well, Brett, these are American cities, these great metropolitan areas that we all live and love. And, and it's they've been through a lot the last year with the one-two punch of not only all the, the civil unrest and, and riots, but also COVID. Uh, COVID really hollowed out a lot of these great cities uh, when people were working from home and restaurants were shuttered. And I know here in our in our city of Washington, it's, it's walking downtown. It's just a shadow of what it used to be. And it seems as though we're all just sitting on pins and needles waiting for this uh, waiting for this trial to come to an end and, and, a, and a decision to be announced. And then it seems like we're all just assuming there's going to be a slew of national violence. And I don't know that our cities can really stand another blow like that. And what it calls for right now is some very strong, decisive national leadership. I mean, if you look back in the history books, what, what Bobby Kennedy did in 1968 after he announced the news that, that Martin Luther King had been assassinated and he was able to uh, keep the crowd quiet and, 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 and show grief and, and, and sympathize with them, but also not lead to any more destruction and carnage. And uh, I hope we're able to have that and not more of this violence uh, rhetoric that Maxine Waters has uh, made. Yeah, Matthew, I'm not harping on Waters. It's just getting a lot of attention, especially in Republican circles. Uh, in fact, the speaker was asked about it. Uh, speaker Pelosi said she doesn't think that Waters should apologize for her remarks and also that she didn't think Waters' comments would incite violence. But it's definitely inciting a lot of commentary. Yeah, absolutely. And look, there should be one standard for rhetoric. I think a lot of Republicans are smarting over the uh, debate over Marjorie Taylor Greene's rhetoric um, in the aftermath of the January 6th riot. And so they want they look at what Maxine Waters is saying and say, well, she wants people to be more confrontational. They're already uh, violent disturbances in Brooklyn Center ahead of the uh, Chauvin verdict. Uh, who knows what um, could happen after that verdict? Uh, comes down. So I think it's fair to say that there should be one standard for political speech. I would say, you know, on something Colin said, there's a political issue here for the Democrats in two parts. One is, if we do have a new uh, outbreak of violence in the aftermath of the Chauvin verdict, it's really incumbent on President Biden to show that somehow he can restore uh, order to America's cities while maintaining race relations in a more positive way uh, than, say, uh, pre his predecessor did. Um, but also, he has to be aware of the fact, and Pelosi needs to be aware of the fact, I'm sure she is, that the law and order issue hurt the Democrats in 2020. It's one reason why the Republicans overperformed uh, in, the, in the polls in 2020. And for there to be another round of violence in the streets amid an increase in crime is bad news for President Biden and the Democratic Party. You buy that, Leslie? Yeah, I, I would agree with that. Look, you know, uh, w whether it's former President Barack Obama or or me, and I certainly don't have uh, his, his uh, street cred, <laughs> um, you know, defund the police was uh, not helpful. It was hurtful uh, to the Democrats. And, you know, I, I think even though President Biden was very clear that he supported the police and he did not support defunding the police, but rather reform. And I think a lot of people, uh, you know, just recently, you know, looking at a gun being mistaken for a taser say, well, we need some reformation as far as training, at least uh, in some of these police departments. But that message uh, really defund the police hurt Democrats. I'm a Democrat. When I first heard defund the police, I said, huh? 
And I thought it was just going to be a very minority uh, fringe of protesters chanting that in places like, you know, you know, Portland or Minneapolis, for example. But but then it went on. So I do agree with Matthew that uh, that that certainly that messaging hurt Democrats and, and it could in the future going into the 2022 elections. Guys, let's hold it right there. We'll continue after this. Hey, folks, it's your man, Keyshawn Johnson, here to talk about Angie, formerly known as Angie's List, your go to home services marketplace for getting all your jobs done well. Now you might be wondering, what exactly is Angie? Well, let me tell you, it's the nation's largest home services marketplace connecting over 150 million homeowners with skilled professionals to tackle any project big or small as a homeowner myself i always have things i want to work on for my house whether it's general home renovations or fun projects like putting in a pool with over 200,000 pros in their network angie makes it a breeze to research, compare, and hire pros, ensuring every job is done well. Whether you're fixing a leaky faucet or planning a full kitchen renovation, Angie's got your back. And get this, folks. Angie's pros aren't just any old contractors. They're your neighbors, often running small businesses right in your community. Plus, they've been rated and reviewed by others in your area. So you know you're getting quality service. So why stress over home projects when you can turn to Angie? From finding the best price to scheduling a pro at your convenience, Angie's got you covered every step of the way. So get started today at Angie.com. That's Angie.com or download the app today to get started on getting all your jobs done. That's Angie, your trusted ally in home services. It's a dangerous time. It's a tense time, as we talked about. Um, but th- you wonder, Colin, what kind of messaging there could be out of this White House that tones things down. Yeah, you do. And it's, you know, uh, President Biden is someone who was uh, elected in his whose campaign, his political career was saved last year by uh, African-American voters. And, and he's keenly aware of that. And, uh, you know, so far, he's been content to, to sit back and uh, be the covid president and uh, focus on the pandemic and not really way too much into other issues. But I, I don't think he's going to have the option to just sit idly back uh, when this verdict comes down, because there is going to be a, a vacuum of leadership and there's going to be someone who needs to step into that void. And as the commander in chief, it's incumbent on him. And it will be uh, his first big test uh, outside of the pandemic that he's been uh, forced to deal with in his first hundred days. And finally, Matthew, you know, we're focused, obviously, internally here in the U.S., but at the same time, there's a bit of a stress test uh, for this president around the world. You've got China flying warplanes into Taiwan. You've got Russia amassing troops along the Ukrainian border. Uh, You've got Iran thumbing its nose at the U.S., enriching uranium to 60 percent. That's a lot of big problems from actors that seem like they're testing President Biden. Absolutely. And, you know, the latest thing on the radar, Brett, is the Russian dissident Alexei Navalny, who uh, has led some of the largest protests against the rule of uh, Vladimir Putin in Russia. He's been on a hunger strike now for several weeks, and his doctors say he's near death. Now, the Biden administration has said that there will be consequences if Navalny dies in police custody. But I, I think that they should take a much more forward leaning approach here and demand uh, at least his release to civilian doctors uh, to restore his health. If Putin is oversees the death of Alexei Navalny by a self-inflicted death of hunger strike, it would just show a lo- uh, go to show Biden's description of Putin as a killer by other means, but also show that Putin really hasn't paid any price as of yet for all of his um, malign behavior in the world. 
Yeah. Leslie, is this um, these countries, do you think, testing this president? It seemed like for all of the negative comments about President Trump, that those countries' leaders really didn't know what he was going to do on a foreign policy stage. And they, in that way, were kind of thrown off by him. Yeah, I, I definitely two different presidents, two different styles with relationship to these countries and, you know, to these leaders. Look, we, we, we definitely have more of a focus, uh, you know, being shifted to China when we look at their military rise now, on the on the Russia front. I, I've got to say, and I, I hope I don't sound uh, insensitive by saying this, but I, I really feel that, you know, if Novani dies, it almost looks like Putin wins. Do you know what I mean? You know, I mean, what what is he, you know, what is he gained, you know, from this? Um, and I, I don't think it's going to hurt Putin. As, if anything, it, you know, it may help Putin. So, you know, I find that confusing. And, and quite frankly, you know, again, you know, I, I'm a Democrat and I support the president. I voted for the president. I didn't think it was as diplomatic as, you know, he could have been coming right out and, you know, saying that Putin's a murderer. That's not a good way, you know, to start things off before you sit down uh, to negotiate. But, you know, Joe Biden doesn't keep his cards as close to the vest, uh, you know, certainly, you know, he's very outspoken with what he feels about these leaders, about these countries and what, you know, he plans to do or not to do. And we'll have to see if that is successful going forward. I don't think it's going to be, you know, completely a a completely different relationship with these countries, because to a certain degree, these countries need us in some areas more than we need them. Obviously, we need them in others. Yeah, Colin, it is a different relationship with Iran, though, as the U.S. tries to sit down uh, and restart a nuclear deal, potentially. But at the same time, Iran is saying, well, you know what? We're going to enrich uranium past this level that we agreed to before while we're still trying to negotiate to get back into the deal. Uh, It doesn't seem that promising. You know, anytime we're talking about foreign policy in the Biden administration, I'm reminded of Robert Gates' quote about that Joe Biden being on the wrong side of every foreign policy decision the last four decades. And this goes back to my point of Joe Biden wasn't elected as a foreign policy president. I think he, some, he fancies himself as a foreign policy guru from his time uh, amid the Foreign Relations Committee, but that's certainly not his forte, and that's certainly not what he was elected to do. He was elected, honestly, because voters wanted a different choice in the pandemic. And as it relates to Iran, that's another issue, Brett, where the Republican Party is very united. They have a very clear uh, point of view on the Iran deal and why it's bad and why we should not go back to that. However, the Democratic Party is a little more complicated for them. And anytime you're entering a political debate, the party that's united typically tends to do better messaging and gets the outcome they want over the party that has that's not uh, singing off the same sheet of music. Well, that's a good point. Um, their messaging internally in the U.S., Republicans seems a, a bit off at times, but you're right on those foreign policy issues. There's a lot of united feelings on that side of the aisle. All right, panel, thanks so much. Here's a bit of historic trivia. On April 22nd, 1862, Congress passed legislation changing the composition of coins in the United States Mint, specifically adding the famous inscription, In God We Trust. The origin of the inscription comes from Treasury Secretary Salmon P. Chase making the executive decision after receiving countless appeals from devout people throughout the country urging the United States to recognize God on U.S. currency. There you go. That'll do it for this week. You can hear more of this series at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. Make sure to leave a rating and a review. We want to hear from you. For Matthew, Colin, and Leslie, I'm Brett Baer. We'll see you next time.
I'm Charles Payne. Listen to my Unstoppable Prosperity podcast so I can get you making money right now. Whether stocks are hitting new all-time highs or in freefall mode, opportunities abound. So why are so many potential investors still sitting on the sidelines? In a new season of my podcast, I'm going to get you in the game. After 38 years on Wall Street, I'm ready to impart some lessons and get you invested in the greatest wealth-generating machine in history. Listen anytime, everywhere at foxbusinesspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast.